If you say that unconditional election is not true, God chose some from the foundation of the world to be ordained to heaven and then some damned to hell without any consideration of a person's choices, then what do you do with Romans chapter 9? You really have to do damage to scripture to deny that that passage teaches unconditional election. Good morning and welcome to God's Resistance. God's Resistance is local in Wilkesbury in the Wyoming Valley and spreading elsewhere. If you need someone to talk to or pray with and are interested in joining a small group to help you live as a disciple of Christ, then stay tuned for contact info. My name is Eric Samborski, and I want to thank you for tuning into God's Resistance, where we resist sin, self, the devil, and the world. You can hear us every Sunday at 9 a.m. on WITK 1550 AM and 94.7 FM. If you missed the radio program when it was broadcasting live, then look for the God's Resistance podcast on your favorite podcast platform in YouTube at 9 a.m. every Sunday, where these are uploaded, and you're going to find other content on there as well. You can find us at godsresistance.com, that's our central hub, and on Facebook, Gab, Gab TV, and YouTube at God's Resistance. That is G-O-D-S-R-E-S-I-S-T-A-N-C-E. Make sure to like, follow, and turn on notifications for helpful spiritual content. You will find us in person every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m., having street uh, services and, uh, in the public square in Wilkesbury, And then we we try to get out there on Sunday, uh, late afternoon, early evening. It really depends on how our uh, worship time went and our fellowship time before as to when we get out there on Sundays. But you can find us on those days as long as it's not pouring rain or something doesn't happen out of our control. You can contact us also at gods.resistance at gmail.com or give us a call or text at 570-362-7782. If you want to worship with other believers, then you contact those uh, those means through social media, through email, through the phone number, and we will try to get you connected so that you can worship together. Now let's listen in on today's briefing. Our last show, uh, we had dealt with the last of unconditional election. Now, unconditional election was a three-part um, series because we had to deal with the sovereignty of God for ordination, you know, God before ordaining certain things to happen, because all of those things give a basis and understanding for the doctrine of unconditional election as taught by the Calvinists. I did think that we need to deal with Romans 9 because this is a this is a, a portion of scripture that oftentimes people hang a lot on. There were some honest Calvinists that said, Regardless of what one may think about unconditional election, I cannot use this uh, scripture to do that. I believe one of them, for if I if memory serves me correctly, was John Gill, um, and there may have been, I don't know if Barnes had said something, but there were some that had looked through that. These are older commentators over you know a hundred years ago or better uh, that, with honesty, said uh, this can't really be talking about that. So you might ask then, what is Romans nine talking about? So we're going to deal with Romans nine today. Um, and we may be going on to Romans 10 and 11 because that gives the fuller picture of context. But today we want to just deal with Romans chapter 9. Now, to answer that question, what is Romans 9 about? I'd like to give you uh, John Fletcher's definition uh, of what Romans chapter 9 is. Now, John Fletcher uh, was a Frenchman um, during the time of John Wesley, and he wrote um, book, uh, a, a volume of books called uh, Checks to Antinomianism. Uh, I believe there is four or five checks to that. I have those. It's an excellent resource. I don't know as if I would agree with 100% of everything that he said in there, but it's an excellent resource. And uh, he was a big proponent uh, for Wesley in those days and and then refuting the errors of Calvinism. 
So he says about Romans chapter nine, that Paul meant in general to vindicate God's conduct in casting off the Jews and adopting the Gentiles. So that's a very broad sweeping um, interpretation of what that means. But then he says he advances two doctrines. One, that God is the creator and supreme benefactor of man or men may do what he pleases with his peculiar favors. And that now he had as indubitable a right to give five talents of church privileges to the Gentiles as he had once to bestow three talents of church privileges upon the Jews. And two, that God had as much right to set the seal of his wrath upon them as upon Pharaoh himself, if they continued to imitate the inflexibleness of that proud unbeliever, inexorable unbelief being the sin that fits men for destruction and pulls down the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. So um, here we find somewhat of a summation from John Fletcher as to um, what Romans 9 is. In Romans 9, he says, it's a vindication that if God so chooses to have his blessing then fall on the Gentiles as a result of the Jews rejecting the Messiah and the salvation that was theirs, then he said, where, where is God's character marred in making that choice? Also, the second thing is that he can uh, put his wrath upon any of those that persist obstinately in rebellion against God. And in this case, it was the Jews who were the ones that were rebellious against God. And he uses Pharaoh in saying that he allowed Pharaoh to continue going onwards in order to display his glory further than what he had originally done through the narrow container of just the Jews or the Israelites themselves. So let's just jump right in to Romans chapter nine. He says, well, first I just wanna say in Romans nine, uh, that this is speaking about national fleshly election. It is not talking about the eternal election. Um, in verse three, Paul says, um, I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul had a, his heart was very much exercised with wanting his fleshly people, which would have been the Jews, wanting them to come to Christ, wanting them to truly be saved instead of holding on to their dead pharisaical religion because he realized that they were trying to go after that by their works um, and then knowing that by their works, they would not be justified. If you would just excuse me for a moment, I just realized in my notes, I did not put down uh, Romans chapter, uh, that chapter nine with verse one. So I'm trying to get that up there so that I make sure I'm not losing any bit of the, the scripture portion. He said, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So here we find he is desirous of the salvation of the fleshly Israelites. He wants them to come out of their pharisaical stupor and to come to the true grace of God found in Jesus Christ. And he says, he could wish himself accursed. Moses had something of that same declaration. Blot my name out of the book if you're not going to save this, your people, God. This is the heart of Paul. Moving on to verses four through five, he says, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenant and the covenants, plural, and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, uh, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. So what is he talking about in these couple verses? Um, the, the benefits that were bestowed to God's elect people. Now, 
this elect people was a national people elected of God for certain things. And we are told in these verses what those certain things are. Adoption, glory, covenant, service, promises. So if we go to the adoption aspect, this people out of all the peoples of the world, God chose the Hebrew people, the Israelites, as his own. He adopted them as his own. He specially cared for these Israelite peoples uh, and that God pledged himself to be their father, to be their provider, to be their protector, to be their blesser, all of those things. He pledged himself to do that. And he didn't pledge himself to do that with any other nation throughout the face of the entire earth, except the Hebrews or the Israelites. They were peculiarly his children above all other nations. And they knew that. They had that sense of that. There was miraculous miracles done for the Israelites because they were God's adopted people. So he said, I've elected you. And because of that, you have the benefits of adoption. Now, the benefits of adoption are that when you're adopted into the family, you have the rights in that family as a normal uh, just child would born out of those two um, having relations together, even though you weren't issue from the uh, father and the mother, you have the benefits as if you were an uh, issue from them. And this is the idea, the adoption. You are a part of the family. You are an heir of all the things of God. And so this was bestowed on the Israelite people, the Hebrew nation. It was, it was bestowed on them because God himself adopted them. And then he said that it wasn't just the adoption, but the glory. And out of all the nations, they experienced, the Israelites experienced the literal presence of God himself amongst them, as opposed to the heathen nations and their fake gods. They had, you know, it, it's kind of, I say it's kind of tongue in cheek in, in some respect, where Isaiah, I believe it is, said, you cut down a tree, you take half of it and you burn it to warm yourself. And the other half you carve into a God and you bow down and, and worship it. And, and he said, and you don't, you don't see the, the irony of that at all. They didn't have the presence of God like the Israelites did. They may have experienced it here and there out of terror when God displayed his wrath and judgment. But the Hebrews, the Israelites literally had the presence of God in their midst. Uh, in the tabernacle, the presence of God was inside of the tabernacle. They saw the presence of God as he descended in smoke upon Mount Sinai. They knew God in a way that others didn't. They saw the, the Red Sea parting and then them going through on dry land, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They, they were elected of God, a chosen people, a nation that literally had the presence of God in their midst. And they were blessed and benefited by God himself being in their midst. They also were a people because of their election, their national election that had the covenants of God. So the covenant that we can think of here is the covenant of circumcision. And that was given to Abraham. And that was given to Abraham and his physical seed. And then we see that that spiritual circumcision, which is the gospel circumcision uh, talked about. And so it's not only just the physical seed had that physical circumcision, but the spiritual, spiritual circumcision, which was then to those that had the same faith as Abraham, which is gospel believers in our present day. So unto the, unto the Israelites pertained the covenants. They peculiarly had the covenant of circumcision. That's what marked them as different than the nations around them. And there are certain times where uh, people that were proselytes that had come in um, or one of um, Jacob's daughters was poorly mistreated uh, by one of the heathen uh, king's sons and said, I really want to marry uh, your, your daughter or whatever. And the uh, Jacob's sons tricked him and then basically uh, had them all be circumcised saying, well, we can't have you marry him because you're not circumcised. Really what they did was just get all the men weak and then slay them. Um, which Jacob frowned on highly. However, 
we're told that they peculiarly had this covenant, the covenant of circumcision. They also had the covenant of just the law of God itself, which was given to them on Mount Sinai. So in Sinai, we find that out of all nations, they had the highest morality, the highest in politics anywhere, the highest civil government, the highest blessedness out of order in government. The Jews prided themselves most beloved of God because he gave them as a people and nation his law. They knew that they were different. And, and there's some place in the scripture which God says, what other nation has a law like yours? What, what other people have been dealt with and given such glory and blessedness, even in the law? And the answer, well, it's a rhetorical question because the answer is there's nobody else that's been given this except the Israelites. He said, it also pertains to you, the service. So this was the unique service or the unique ordinances uh, that were given. And I, I, I would look at this in the, the sacrificial system in the priesthood, the, the worship of God, the service of God was given to the Israelites. And you could say, well, these other pagan nations and these other heathen nations, they, they had their own um, priesthood, their own sacrificial systems, their own ordinances. Yes, but they didn't have God. They had a God in their own image that they made with stone and wood and such things like that and built a whole priesthood around it, but they didn't have the God of all creation. Now the Israelites, they were favored with having the service of God and his ordinances, the sacrificial system, the priesthood to serve the living and the, the only living and true God that was given peculiarly to the Israelites. And also we're told that they have the promises. So we know the promises uh, are referring to the promise of that, of that land, the land of Canaan, where God said, I'm giving you a land that flows with milk and honey. That is for you. That was not a promise made for heathens or any other people like that, but that was for them. He was going to take them out of that bondage and slavery in Egypt and put them into a land full of plenty and blessing and good. And then also the promises that were given to them was the promises of the coming Messiah, which was to be the savior of the entire world, but he was going to come through them. And they were going to be the ones privileged to know about that, to experience him. And it was God's original intent that they were going to propagate that to the nations. That was the promises that were peculiar, peculiarly, that's a hard word to say, peculiarly given to them as a nation. They were elected of God for these purposes. And we're told that these promises, these are of the fathers. So these were promises God made to the fathers. Way back when I say the fathers, those are the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, God promised this to them before Sinai, before the law was ever given. God promised that to them. Now in verses six through eight, we read, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So what do these verses teach us then? We just talked about all the benefits that Israel as a nation had peculiarly elected or chosen of God out of all the nations of the earth. And then these verses here, six through eight, tell us that national election does not automatically mean individual election. So if God elected Israel, why have they rejected him and God has adopted the Gentiles? If this chapter were in fact about uh, eternal election, unconditional eternal election, then why is it that this elected people whom he's speaking about and making a distinction between fleshly Israel and the spiritual or real Israel in his sight, if he's making that distinction, then why were these elected people damned? Now, some of them weren't. There was a remnant, and we can read about that in the later two chapters uh, after Romans 9. But some of them, uh, they were damned. They, they rejected God, and as far as we know, went to hell 
even though they were elected as a national people. So God's national election is without condition to some extent. Romans eleven twenty nine says, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance in reference to their nat- national election and all of their blessings and benefits because of their national election. So his election is without condition to some extent. And I say to some extent because he did say he was going to give them the land of Canaan. And he said, when you get there, don't forget me. And he said, there'll be curses if you forget. There'll be blessings if you remember. And so he did, in some sense, cast them off at certain times. And But it was always seemingly a remedial move on God's part when his judgment came down on his people. He was trying to remedy things and always woo them back to himself. So I say his election is without condition to some extent. Because then with the destruction of Jerusalem, then they forfeited their right to carry the gospel to the nations uh, to some extent because there was the believing remnant that did do that. We understand the apostles um, were Jewish people and there were a lot of Jewish believers. But as a nation, they were pushed off to the side because they rejected God. And then he went to the Gentiles and we realized there's going to be, this is all a part of God's plan, by the way. So God's individual election, however, it's different. So his national election is without condition to some extent, but God's individual election is conditional. And how do we know that? Because he said, not all Israel, uh, not people that are all fleshly Israel are the true Israel of God. So not all the fleshly Israelites are children of the promise. How is that even possible then? We're told that the same faith uh, in God that Abraham had is in the heart of God's elect people. And his elect people is the church of Jesus Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ is made up of people who are saved. They are elect because of their faith in God. That is a condition. They're elected because they believe on the son of God. They repented and believed in his name. So national election is without condition. God's individual election is with condition because we're told they follow after Abraham. Those are the elected ones. And you, we can, we'll continue to go on and I hope to help you to see this even clearer. So Romans 9 Uh, 9 through 13, we read, for this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father, Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any evil or good that the purpose of God, according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now you may be thinking, well, there it is, brother. There it is. He hated one man and loved the other one, and it was without works and all that. So let's think about this, though. He's talking about a promise that was given. He said, for this is the word of promise that is to Sarah concerning Isaac, her son. Then we're told that Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And we talk about with these two sons, the purpose of God according to election might take place. What was this purpose of God? What is this election? Jacob we're told, was not chosen because of his character to be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel because Jacob's character was not very good. His name means supplanter, heel grasper, and we see his life. He was conniving and trying to move things around to help God fulfill what God had ordained to be happening through Jacob. And God had to give him a a good spanking, so to speak. So the purpose of God, according to election here is not whether or not Jacob was going to go to heaven or hell. That's not the question that is uh, being, I say the question, that's not the, the issue that's being dealt with. It's national election still. It's not individual election here with Jacob and Esau. How do we know that? Because it said that the elder shall, or excuse me, yeah, the elder shall serve the younger. And Esau, as far as we can tell through the scripture, never served Jacob when they were both alive. That didn't happen between those two brothers then. However, 
It happened afterwards as they were the fathers of nations. So loving and hating of Jacob and Esau here is a hyperbole. Uh, it's much like, well, first of all, it's referencing Malachi 1, chap, uh, verses 2 through 3. He said, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Esau and I hated, or excuse me, yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now Esau, uh, the, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. So he's talking about nations at this moment and not the people themselves though those peoples may have been blessed differently than one another. Uh, Whedon, a commentator, Methodist commentator said this, God, when I say Methodist, I do not mean the Methodists of our present day, which are um, apostate at best. Uh, God foresaw Edom the nation descended from Esau as persistently godless. And so the objects of God's disfavor, Jacob stood for or represented the church and the spiritual seed by faith, Jew or Gentile. And so were the object of God's favor or love. But this does not at all imply that the evil of the Edomites was decreed of necessi or necessitated or that it secured the personal damnation of Esau or any particular Edomite. Esau may have been saved. Salvation was in reach of every Edomite. So again, what is being dealt with here in Romans 9 is national election. It has nothing to do with somebody's personal salvation or not. So there's no hint of unconditional election to salvation or eternal reprobation that has yet been spoken of here in Romans chapter 9. National election is the point, and we must look at the whole context. And I believe Romans 10 and 11 makes that even easier to understand. My, we've got to breeze through this. Romans um, for the verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Uh, is God unrighteous then to pick the younger son, Jacob, and make his this tremendous blessing happen through him instead of the firstborn son? Uh, verses 15 through 16, we read, for he saith to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And that is from Exodus 33, 19. God passed by Moses and showed his glory from the hinder parts. Jews deserve to be cut off or punished for their rebelliousness. God instead chose to have mercy on his elect people in spite of their rebellion. That's the nation there. Clark, Adam Clark said, as if he had said, I will make such a display of my perfections as shall convince you that my nature is kind and beneficent, but know that I am a debtor to none of my creatures. My benefits and blessings are merely from, from my own goodwill, nor can any people, much less a rebellious people, challenge them as their due in justice or equity. And therefore I now spare the Jews, not because either you who intercede for them or they themselves have any claim upon my favor, but of me, of my own free will and sovereign grace, I choose to show them mercy and compassion. So there, God is not unrighteous to do so. Verses 17 through 18, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might shew my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. So we read this phrase in here, raise thee up. The Hebrew literally is made thee to stand. Fletcher says it this way, Pharaoh looked upon every plague as a death, witness his own words, 
Entreat the Lord in, in Exodus 10, 17. Entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. And that was one of the plagues. And if every plague was death to Pharaoh, says Fletcher, was not every removal of a plague a kind of resurrection, a raising him up together with his kingdom from a state of destruction, according to these words of the Egyptians? Knowest thou not yet that Egyptian is that Egypt is destroyed? How reasonable and scriptural is this interpretation? How diabolical is that of the Calvinist, says Fletcher. Whedon says... Indeed, there were years in which God would gladly have shown his mercy to this proud monarch. Now those years are past. The hour has come when he is made to live on earth, when he should be in hell, that God may reveal his true omnipotence in the land and over the rulers and the gods of Egypt. Verses 19 through 21. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump, lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? This is the question the self-justifying Jews would rebut towards Paul's argument. Paul said, Thou, the Jews, will then say to me, because he was telling him about how God chose national election and did things in certain ways for his certain purposes and exercised mercy on the nation, even though they were rebellious. He's saying, then if this is the case and you, you elected us for these reasons and this is how we behave, then isn't this the case? Um, the Jews were wrongly, or the Jews wrongly here took up the view that God was a fatalistic predestinarian. This was all in effort to justify their rebellion as if it was God's will that they rebel and therefore helpless against it. But the thing is, it wasn't God's doing that this happened. It's just that God foreknew that it would happen. The key to understanding this correctly, this whole situation with Pharaoh is to understand this is just as, as Paul said by telling us uh, that this was the line of thinking that the self-justifying Jews in the beginning of verse 19 had. He's saying, this is what you say. This isn't what I say. This isn't what God says. This is what you say. He said, I can just hear you saying this now after listening to what I'm trying to tell you. And then in verses 22 through 24, he says, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Even us, who are these vessels of mercy? Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So the remnant of the Jews and the Gentiles. So Paul abhors this wrongly predestinarian fatalistic view of God that the Jews here present uh, to his argument. And Paul tells us the reason that God allowed, in this case, Pharaoh to be raised up instead of immediately destroyed, fitted to destruction by his own obstinacy, which would have been just, was so that God might be known to all the nations of the world. God was not to be just known and enjoyed of the Jews, but he was to be known by the whole world and the Jews were supposed to be the ones telling everyone. The Jews as a nation, however, failed their God-intended mission as we come to this time in the New Testament in the, in the new covenant, uh, verses 25 through 26, as he saith in uh, O.C. or Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, speaking of the Gentiles, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. So God's vessels of mercy were the Gentiles and the believing Jews. In Romans, uh, in the 27th and 29th verse, he says, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, 
except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. And this is the same sentiment, not all Israel is Israel. So he said his vessels of mercy was on those that would believe as the Israelites, but also all the nations would become the vessels of mercy because now God was made known in glorious power through the obstinacy of Pharaoh because God didn't destroy him immediately when he could have done that justly, but he let he raised him up and kept him without destroying this proud, proud monarch so the nations would fear God also. So what is the conclusion then? National election did not secure personal election and salvation. Believing Gentiles are the elect of God. Verse 30 of this chapter. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. Unbelieving national elect Israelites are not the true people of God, according to verses 31 through 33. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So national election did not um, help them to be a saved people, part of the new covenant relationship. They rejected God, but the believing Gentiles, they came in and became the elect of God. And to, to just settle to rest that this whole chapter has nothing to do with unconditional election, we read in the end of verse 33, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. This is the meaning of God's true individually elect people. So Romans 9 is national election, not unconditional election. And as we go through Romans 10 and 11, I hope to make that context even the more clear. Give us a call or text at 570-362-7782 or meet us out in the Wilkes-Barre Public Square Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday late afternoon, early evening. But until then, join the resistance, God's resistance. Special thank you to Spectacular Sound Productions for giving permission to use the song Heroes and Monsters, which was edited and used in part on this production. The permission was granted under Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International Creative Commons License. That license may be found at https colon forward slash forward slash creativecommons.org forward slash licenses forward slash by hyphen essay forward slash 4.0 forward slash legal code.